0: Sleep well last night? Great. I did. Uh, after the newly, not-so-newlywed game, I did still get to sleep in the bed with my spouse. I wasn't banished to the brown couch. We got one point in that. Uh, you guys have your Bibles with you. If you would, just please open those up with me to Ephesians chapter 4. <coughs> Ephesians chapter 4. This morning, what I would like to do is talk to you all just a little bit about my minivan, okay? How many minivan drivers do we have with us this morning yet? Is that it? <laughs> really? Oh, well, never mind. No. Well, I'm still going to talk about my minivan, even if you guys don't drive minivans. Um, used to, and this is probably where most of you guys are, is I absolutely didn't want a minivan. I was in the, I'll never own a minivan crowd. I'll just get myself one of those SUVs or something like that. But see, what I notice is that something happens when you have kids. When kids come along, they have lots of stuff. They got toys, they've got pack and plays and their suitcases and their high chairs and their bouncy seats and everything else that goes into a vehicle and packing for vacation in our little blue car got to be quite dangerous. And so it was time to upgrade to a minivan. And so I went from being in the oh I'll never own a minivan crowd to the Lord please provide our family with a minivan, okay? And he did. We found one. It's actually parked outside right now. We found one that was in our price range. Uh, It's just a few years ago. We found it, and we love our van. It wasn't brand new, but it was new to us, and it's awesome. Toyota Sienna, hot rod red, (laughs) six cylinders pumping underneath the hood, stow and go, seating in the third row, miles of room in the back, I love my, mini- my minivan. I tell you what, I'm just so thankful for it, but something happened. Something awful happened on May the 1st, 2013 in the Ikea parking lot in Westchester, Ohio, outside of Cincinnati, just a little over a week. I know, nine days. After we bought this thing, I was driving up a parking lot road, just minding my own business, about to head home. And this guy pulls out into me and he hits me right behind the driver's side tire. I was upset. I was frus- frustrated. I had just bought this thing. And it was, it was really an interesting collision because there were no other cars around us for about 80 to 100 yards. It was literally just us on this abandoned side of the parking lot. And I was frustrated when he hit me. My, my mind moves fast, y'all. And so when he hit me, I went from what just happened to, oh, somebody hit me, To I just bought this thing just like that. <laughs> and He saw my reaction when he hit me, because when he hit me, I processed all that, and I smacked the steering wheel. And he got out of the car, and he's like, oh, bro, I'm sorry I saw your face when I hit you. I mean, seriously. I was upset, and I was frustrated. I just had it for a little over a week, and so I I called my dad, and I told him what had happened. And my dad's a great dad. He's a good dad, and he just wanted to be a good dad to me. And he said, son, don't worry about this. They will fix it. And once they fix it, he said, it will be as good as new but as good as new and brand new are two very different things they did fix it and they did a fine job if you walked out there right now and looked at it which you're welcome to do after we get done here this afternoon it's a fine minivan you're welcome to go check it out Um, you will see that they did just a fine job but it's it's not new anymore I know that this thing has been wrecked, and I know that it's been repaired. As, as good as new and new are two very different things. Now, when it comes to fixing stuff, as good as new is about as good as it gets. But when we believe in Christ, and when God takes our broken and wrecked lives and he starts working on us, he doesn't just fix us. You see, this isn't just a repair job. What God's Word tells us is that He actually makes us brand new. Brand new. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, if anyone in, is in Christ, he is a new. He is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. In Christ we're not as good as new, you see. We are brand new. We are forgiven of sin and we are set free. From sin, and we are transformed. We have these new transformed hearts that are able to move away from sin. It's, it's incredible. It's an incredible thing. And as we said last night, it's this work that Christ does in us that actually makes a good marriage possible. God, he made marriage to be good. Marriage is good. There is nothing wrong with marriage. The problem in our marriages, each and every one of our marriages, is that we sin. We sin against each other, God's desire is that all the husbands and wives in this room be one. But what happens in our relationships is that sin tears us apart. Well, thankfully, thankfully Jesus came and he has fixed our sin problem. He makes, it, he makes us new and he makes it possible. He makes it possible for husbands and wives to come together and to live together intimately and relationally as one. But here's the thing. Being new and being perfect, those are two very, very different things. You see, we still sin, at least I do, okay? We still sin, and we are still tempted, and we still fail, even when we know the right thing to do. We still fail, and so even as believers, sin affects our marriages, Husbands and wives, we will struggle to relate to each other because of our tempers, because of our pride, because of our selfish attitudes, and because of our broken priorities. We will struggle to be able to talk to each other. There will be times when we bicker and we fight. Sin can cause our relationships to grow cold and then rocky and then to slowly move us apart, or maybe quickly in some cases move us apart. And then we say when that starts to happen, well, I thought I was new. I thought I was new. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. I sure don't feel new. I feel broken. I feel wrecked. My spouse sure doesn't think I'm new. If you were to ask them, if I'm new, then why am I struggling and if I'm new, why does my marriage continue to struggle? Well, the Apostle Paul, he tells us something very helpful. He's going to tell us that this morning in Ephesians chapter 4. I love the book of Ephesians. I truly do. In fact, if you look at my Bible, Ephesians is kind of falling out of it right now. That's not because I'm super holy or anything like that. It's just Ephesians is kind of my go-to book for so much of life. And the reason is, is because at the beginning of the book of Ephesians, Ephesians, Paul lays out this beautiful theology of this great salvation that we have in Jesus Christ. And then in the second end of the book, of Ephesians, he talks about how to practically live out that great salvation that we have in Jesus. And so what he's going to tell us today in chapter 4 is that Christian life, even though we are made new in Christ, Christian life, we are required to put on our newness. We're required to put it on. In Christ, God has made us new, but over the course of our lives, he calls us to actively to actively put on our new selves as he works in us to make us more like his son, Jesus. And you're going to see what I mean in just a bit, but this is important for us this morning as married couples, because the more that we seek to put on our new, the more that we'll seek to put to death that sin, those sinful things that divide us as husband and wife. And the the more that we seek to put away that sin and put to death that sin, the closer we are going to become as couples and the better we'll be able to relate to each other as new creatures in Jesus Christ. So we're going to go ahead and read this passage. Uh, We're going to go ahead and start back up a little bit and start in chapter 4, verse 17. So if you would, read with me Ephesians chapter 4, verse 17. Paul says this, he says, Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But this is not the way you learned Christ. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him the truth uh, as the truth is in Jesus to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. So here it is. This is what it looks like to be new. Through Christ, God makes us new we do not accomplish this all right this is not our task to accomplish this is something that god does through the power of his spirit when we believe and become christ's followers as we've already said in second corinthians chapter or 5 or 17 therefore if anyone is in christ he is a new creation the old has passed away behold the new has come all this is from who <laughs> All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself. Fantastic news this morning. Fantastic. All of this, all of this being new, our old passing away, the new us coming, all of this work is from God. It is his work to accomplish in us. But even though he calls, uh, even though he is the one who does this work, what he does is he calls us to participate in it as he works in us. He calls us to participate in it as he exerts his power that makes it possible in us. I want to read you another verse of Paul's from the book of Romans, chapter 6, verse 12. He says, Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. So, it's God that makes us new. But i tell you what, if you read that passage from Romans, there's a few commands there for us, right? A few imperatives, a few things for us to do. Paul's saying, don't sin. Don't sin. Instead, live like what you are. Live like somebody who has been rescued from spiritual death. Do righteously. And so this morning you say, well, that is all a bunch of fun, but what does this have to do with marriage? Well, it has everything, everything to do with marriage. If our God has called husbands and wives to be one, and if it's our sin that comes between us being one and threatens our oneness, then what we need to do is we need to abandon sin, right? That's what he's called us to do. By far, the bulk of the counseling that I do as a pastor is with married couples in struggling marriages. And without exception, the roadblock that consistently comes up is when couples fail to apply biblical Principles and biblical ways of living to their relationship, and instead continue in destructive, sinful habits that tear them apart without fail, without exception. In Christ, we are brand new. In Christ, we are new. Creation sin has no dominion over us. We have new life in Jesus if we believe and we have been set free. So, what's the problem? Well, God has called us to participate in His work of making us new, like His Son, Jesus. God makes us new, but God calls us to put on. He calls us to put on our newness. And in our Ephesians 4 passage, Paul shows us exactly how we're supposed to do this. If you look at the passage that we read just a little bit ago... Uh, He starts in verse 17, he's encouraging these Ephesian believers not to live like the Gentiles live, if you all remember that, not to live like they are lost, not to walk about in the futility of their minds, and he's essentially telling them that they can no longer be what they were, all right? Ephesus is not a Jewish town. It is a Gentile town. These are converted Gentiles. And Paul's saying, look, you cannot be the way that you were. You cannot live like what you were. That's not how they learned Christ. They need to live a new way. They need to live a different way. They need to live like what they are now in Jesus. And this is what Paul tells them to do. And this is what Paul tells us to do. We need to put off the old us. Verse 22, he says, You guys learn to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. You see, this is something that believers have to actively do. This is something that we have to exert effort to do. This is an act of the will as a believer to seek to abandon sin, to put off sin to move away from what we were and and how we used to live before we were forgiven of sin and set free from sin. And then after we do that, he says, we need to be renewed in the spirit of our minds. It sounds all fancy and spiritual. It does. But it means that we just need to let God transform us on the inside. Remember what he says, what we used to be before we knew Christ in in our heads was dark and futile and didn't understand the things of God. And such thinking led to ungodly living. What happens in life is that the way the Christian mind works determines the way that the Christian lives. Our minds need to then continually be renewed by God. And what happens is that the Holy Spirit does this as we encounter the Word of God. So, yeah, I'm going to say it. We have to read our Bibles, guys, you know? It's not rocket science. We just, we got to read our Bibles. Not because it's a good idea. Not because just reading our Bibles makes our troubles float away. It's nothing like that. It's because as we digest Scripture, the Spirit of God uses its truth to make our mind more like the mind of God. And if our mind is like the mind of God, then we will live as God has called us to live. And this makes it possible for what comes next, to put on the new us. Verse 24. And to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. And so what we do is we put off the old us. We have God renew our minds through the power of his spirit, through his word and then we put on our new. And this last step does have to be done, okay? We can't just settle to put off the old us because if all we do is put off the old us, then we're going to leave a void, and we will jump back into that void because that's what we do naturally. We have to put on what is new. If we're thieves, what this means is that we need to stop stealing. But we don't just stop with stopping stealing. The thief that puts on his new seeks to be generous. He puts on generosity, just like Zacchaeus. Remember Zacchaeus? He climbed that sycamore tree. We can't just have this empty void. We have to put on our new. And so God, He's made us new in Christ. He's done it. But He calls us to put on our new, to take on this active role in abandoning sin and putting on holiness. And married couples, listen. The more husband and wife together and and individually seek to do this, to abandon your old self, to abandon your sin, and to put on your new self, to put on this brand new creation that you are in Jesus, the more healthy and the more intimate our marriages are going to be. If what we've said about sin is true, and the Bible says that it is, If what we've said about the effects of sin on our marriage are true, then we need to move away from sin, and we need to move towards righteousness. And so here's what we're going to do the rest of this morning. It's going to be pretty practical. We're going to look at what Paul says in the rest of this passage, and like any good pastor, what Paul does is he gets really practical. He gives very specific examples of what it means to put off the old us and to put on the new us. In this, the rest of this passage, he's going to be speaking generally to Christian relationships, but we're going to aim it. We're going to aim it at our marriages. So I know this morning and uh, that some of us here may not feel new. Some of you guys may feel repaired. Some of you guys may feel just a little bit wrecked. But If you are in Christ, you are a brand new creation. And if you are a new creation, then you are able to put on your new. And when it comes to your spouse, you will be able to relate to him or her like new. And so these are kind of Paul's tips, if you will. Not mine, but Paul's tips on how to relate like new. Number one, create a culture of honesty create a culture of honesty. Within our marriages, there absolutely has to be honesty and openness. I mean, we've got to be able to trust each other, right? We have to. Two can't be one if one lies, and two can't be one if both lie, and if both hide things. And so here's what Paul says to do. He is applying that put off and put on principle that he just taught. Verse 25, therefore, Having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. And so here's what we do. We need to put off lying, falsehood. We need to put off deceit, that old us. Now, we are tempted to deceive for a few reasons. Number one is to get what we want. Number two is to make ourselves look better than we actually are. Number three is to cover our tracks when we have done something wrong. We have all done these things. Now, often what we will do is we will tell ourselves to shade the truth or tell little white lies to our significant others is, oh, the truth will hurt. Oh, he or she just won't understand. Or what they don't know won't hurt them, right? But what happens is that lying very quickly will erode a marriage. It will pull a husband and a wife apart, because how can you be close to somebody that you can't trust? I'm not close to anybody that I can't trust. In fact, as soon as I find out that I can't trust somebody, I start to distance myself from them. Still love them. they for them. But I pull back, and I don't talk as much when I talk to them. And yes... Of course, in this situation, we are talking about infidelity. Absolutely, we're talking about infidelity, but we're also talking about more than infidelity. This applies to everything, this applies to the small things in life as well. And so, husbands, if you go somewhere, just tell her where you're going, tell her what you might do there. You know, just talk to her. Don't hide it like, oh, me and the guys are going to get into something we may shouldn't get. Just, just tell her. Just talk to her about it. And honestly, if you don't want to tell your spouse about it, you may not want to go, right? You know what I'm saying? <laughs> And then ladies, wives, t- don't hide that receipt from him, <laughs> all right, you know, don't, don't hide that receipt. I don't it doesn't matter how many shoes are on that receipt. If you are tempted to hide that receipt from him, just take some of those shoes back, and maybe next time don't buy so many shoes. What benefit does it, what benefit is there to your marriage if you hide that receipt from him? A dishonesty will absolutely tear a marriage apart. And so we need to take off the old us. We need to pull off the old us. And we need to look at what God's Word says about honesty. We need to be renewed in the spirit of our minds. And then we need to put on truth. Let's put on truth. God commands His people in His Word to speak truth. As far as commandments go, this was a big one. It's pretty standard. It's number nine on the Big Ten, right? you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Your flesh, it does want to lie. Our flesh wants to shade the truth. Our flesh wants to take care of itself and promote itself. Our flesh wants to get what it wants. But in Christ, we are new. And husbands and wives, we need to speak the truth to each other. Now, here the Apostle Paul is speaking pretty generally to those within the body of Christ. Speak truth, he says, for we are members one of another. As, as believers, we are connected. We are a body. Falsehood will threaten that unity. So how much more? How much more should we be inclined to speak the truth within this most important relationship of marriage? Married couples, listen, lying will tear you apart. But culture of honesty within our marriages will drive us together because we will be able to trust each other. If you want to be one, you've got to talk truthfully. Next, if you want to be one, then we need to deal with conflict. God's way. Listen conflict. It is going to happen. Because I want you to think about what marriage is for just a little bit. We are talking about putting two people together, two different people with different personalities, with different backgrounds, with different interests, with different strengths, and different weaknesses. We're talking about putting these two very different people together, them becoming one. And oh, by the way, they are sinners, right? Right? They are both selfish sinners who are by nature selfish and are inclined to look out for themselves. So there is going to be a rub. It's just going to happen. There is going to be conflict in marriage. You guys remember that video that Matt showed where Laura and I were singing what's love got to do with it? Yeah, or lip singing. You don't want to hear me sing. But we were lip singing what love got to do with it. What you didn't see was the small spat that my wife and I had over that video while we were filming it, all right? I was feeling rushed that day, okay? It was on my lunchtime, and I had a lot to do over to church, and I needed to get back to work. And we were going over those super cool moves that you all saw in the video. We were talking about what we were going to do and how we were going to do it. It took multiple takes to get it down to the perfect video that you all saw. And Laura was concerned that the video wasn't long enough, She was concerned that that it needed to be a longer lip sync video or whatever. And so about three or four times, she said, is this long enough? Do you think it needs to be longer? Is this long enough? Do you think it needs to be longer? Finally, again, I was stressed. I needed to get back to work. Finally, I lost my patience, and I said, Matt Brown said this was fine. This is what he wanted. (laughs) And when I did that, when I did that, her response was, hey, listen, right? Spat. Over something small. Over your video. This is your fault. (laughs) Thanks. (laughs) Over something small. Over something meaning. I mean, I'm glad you all enjoyed it. I pray you all enjoyed it because we had a little fight over that. But over something absolutely silly. In our marriages, conflict is going to happen. And listen, if in your marriage conflict does not happen, then something is probably wrong. You know, conflict probably is still happening. It's just that that one of you is the one who's trying to sweep everything under the rug. But as you do that, you're quietly becoming bitter towards the other person. It is not a question of if, but how we deal with it. It's how we deal with conflict when it comes, and there is a wrong way to do it, and there is a right way to do it. According to Paul, here is what we need to put off. What we need to put off is sin and avoidance. Sin and avoidance. He says, be angry and do not sin. Interesting that what Paul does is he draws a line between sin and anger. They're not the same thing. Tell you what though, anger makes it really easy to sin. Anger makes it really easy to say hurtful things, hurtful things that we just say so quickly when we react so quickly without thinking. Anger makes it easy to make decisions that we regret later. And so, yes, we need to put those sins off that so often accompany our anger. But we also need to put off this tendency that, that uh, I'd say most of us have. Maybe some of us. Maybe some of us charge right into conflict. But this tendency that many of us have to avoid conflict, he says, do not let the sun go down on your anger. Don't dodge it. Don't pretend like it's not a a big deal. Don't run away from conflict. Now, it's helpful, I think, that the Apostle Paul tells us these things that we need to put off because uh, I, I think each of us, to some degree, struggle with one or both of these The book, uh, I mentioned it last night, the book that I like to use when I do premarital counseling, it's called Preparing for Marriage, edited by a guy named Dennis Rainey. And what he does is he gives four categories, four different ways that people tend to react to conflict or tend to try to handle conflict. And maybe you'll be a mix of both as we go through this, but here is what they are. Number one is the fight to win method. Fight to win. This one is really driven by pride. The conflict becomes a contest, a battle of the wills, a competition to see who is right and the goal. And the only goal is to win and prove the other side wrong. And at its worst, this conflict will rage even after one side knows that it is in fact wrong. But they just continue on stubbornly to prove their point. If when in conflict and you get mad, you are a yeller, or a screamer. This may be your preferred method of handling conflict. Also, number two, there is the withdraw method. Perhaps you find conflict very unpleasant. It makes you feel awkward. It makes you feel uncomfortable. Maybe you just don't want to waste your time or your efforts on it. Maybe you just think that it is a hopeless thing, and so what you do is you pull out of it you avoid it. You go into silent mode, even though everybody knows you're still mad about it because the way your face looks. If you tend to pout when you get mad and want to pick up your toys and go home, this may be your preferred method for dealing with conflict. By the way, that's mine. All right? This is me, big pouty man. Number three Then there is the yield method. I'm a mix of number two and number three, by the way. It's a mess. The yield method. You become a people pleaser. What you do is you do whatever the other person wants because at the end of the day, you're just trying to keep them happy to ensure that there are no, uh, well, we won't say that there are no conflicts because there's clearly a conflict, but to keep the thing from blowing up because you just don't want to deal with it. The problem with that is this, though, is that you become a doormat you become a doormat, and you will eventually feel really bitter about being a doormat. And at the end of the day, the peace that you're keeping is kind of artificial. It's not real because you're not at peace, and so your relationship really has this layer of superficiality about it. And so, if you would rather, much rather be walked all over and not speak up and speak your mind rather than deal with an issue, this may be your preferred method for handling conflict. All of these, of course, are unbiblical, and they're unhealthy, and they are not good for our marriages. And so, what we need to do is we need to put each of those off, whichever one or whichever mix of those that you are. If conflict is not handled in the right way, it will destroy marriage. I mean, it will tear a marriage absolutely apart. And so, as those who are new in Christ, what we need to do is put on self-control and reconciliation. Self-control and reconciliation. This is the fourth method of conflict on that list that I mentioned. It is conflict resolution that leads to reconciliation. Couples need to lovingly resolve their conflict. When we are angry, there is such a temptation to start hurtling our words around, hurling, I'm sorry, our words around like they are battle axes. That is what we do without patience, without love, without compassion, because we want to maim, we want to hurt, and we want to destroy. That is naturally what rolls out of us, but God tells us in James 3 that what we need to do is tame our tongue. And so that means that in Christ, we might be able, we must be able to tame our tongues. We need to exercise self-control over what we say. We need to have a filter, regardless of our emotions. As we said, it's such a temptation to avoid uh, conflict, but Paul tells us to engage it do not let the sun go down on your anger. He says, deal with it. So we have self-control, but we also lean into it, and we handle it all at the same time. We don't withdraw. We don't yield just to keep peace. We actually lean into it. We handle it. Now, a bit of practical advice. When I first got married, I interpreted this verse quite literally. And so Laura and I would have these knockdown dragouts late into the night because I did not want to let the sun go down on my anger, which was silly because the sun had already set. But here's what happens. Here's what happens is when you are angry and you're tired, it just tends to make you more angry because you're not thinking clearly. And I tell you what, sometimes it's okay to sleep on it. Sometimes it is okay to sleep on it. My advice is, is to deal with it quickly. That's the principle of the verse. Deal with it quickly. If it's two in the morning and you guys can't seek a reconciliation over the thing, go to bed. Just go to bed and rest and deal with it as quickly as you can in the morning. And here is why we have to exercise self-control and deal with it quickly so that we don't give opportunity to the devil. We have an enemy and he is actively working against every marriage in this room. He is desperately trying to drive a wedge between you and your spouse, and it would give him great pleasure to suck all the joy out of your relationship. Great pleasure. And it would give him even greater pleasure to absolutely sever your relationship completely. And when conflict's not dealt with, when conflict is not dealt with faithfully and biblically, with self-control and Uh, with leaning into it, he, he will do this. He will work against us. In our anger, he has lots of room to work. We have to engage conflict quickly, lovingly, and biblically. Now also, anytime that we talk to each other, whether we're in conflict or whether we're out of conflict, anytime we relate to each other, if we want to relate to each other like we're new in Christ, we need to use the right words. We need to use the right words. Using the right words will actually help us avoid unnecessary conflict. And it will help us resolve conflict when we get into conflict. So again, here is what Paul tells us to do. He tells us to put off corrupting talk. Put off corrupting talk. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth. That's verse 29. This means that we need to watch the types of words that we use. When we talk to each other, whether we are mad or whether we are not mad. Now, we certainly need to avoid cussing at each other, right? That just doesn't help. It never helps. It actually might add some fuel to that fire. There's nothing that ramps up an argument like dropping a cuss bomb in the middle of it. (laughs) Nothing that ramps up the tension level. But we also need to avoid words and statements that are just mean and that are just divisive like, I hate you, or my mama was right about you. Why are you so lazy? Such and such and his husband doesn't act that way. I read about it on Facebook. He's great. We need to watch what we say to each other. Now, when we get upset and when we get frustrated, what we like to do is we like to use words as weapons. We want to hurt with them. I mean, we want to hurt with them, especially if we're hurt, but we need to watch. We need to watch the types of words that we use, and we need to watch how we use them. Tone and body language mean a lot. I mean, they really do. It's not just about what you say. It is very much how you say it. My wife, she works in our home. She keeps our home functioning. She is the glue that holds our family together. There's a difference between me coming home at the end of the day and smiling at Laura and saying, hey, honey, Hey, what what did you do today? There's a big difference between that and me walking in the door all mad and angry, looking around the house and frowning and saying, "What did you do today?" Right? Isn't that right? Big difference, two different questions, same words. Two different questions, and I tell you what, those two different questions are going to get two different reactions. Right? tone and body language mean so much. Most of the time, they mean just as much as the words that you're actually using to say. And then, fellas, sarcasm. Yeah, sarcasm. Sarcasm just a bad idea in marriage. I mean, maybe you and your spouse have that one marriage where sarcasm flies. I don't know. But like a few days in, I think we were in premarital counseling. I found out he just had to die. Now, guys, here's how it is, is that when we are with each other, it's great. It is how we talk to each other. It's been a blessing to hang out with Matt the past couple of days and just rip, you know? (laughs) We are snarky, man. We are very snarky. We are sarcastic and borderline irritable. That's where where we are. (laughs) And it is just wonderful to talk to you that way. But, guys, listen up. There's a 99% chance that your wife is not into that. 99.9. If she is, praise the Lord for her because that's how you talk to your fellows. But there is a good chance that she is not into that. It is just not her thing. She is not going to respond well to her sarcasm. And my guess is, is that if all you are is sarcastic towards her, it's driving her absolutely bananas. And it doesn't matter how much time you try Uh, To get her to adjust to it. She is not going to adjust. It's just not going to happen. So my personal advice to you from my own own marriage is maybe keep sarcasm for your pastor. Talk to him sarcastically all you want. (laughs) He's fantastic. But at home, maybe cut that out. Words matter. Words matter quite a bit. Insulting talk, demeaning talk, abusive talk. Using words uh, that hurt will prevent you from growing close to your spouse. It is just how it works. Words are powerful things, and if they are misused, it will absolutely cause division. But if we use the right words, if we use the right words, then what God tells us will happen is that people will actually come together. We need to put on talk that builds up, talk that builds up Again, verse 29, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. And so do you you see the difference? He's describing two different ways of talking. Instead of using our words as weapons to tear down our spouses, we choose to use words that build them up. We say, thank you. We say, I love you. I appreciate you. Good job on that. And even in our conflict, we can actually use words that build up, can't we? I'm sorry I hurt you in the way that I hurt you. Or if you're like me, help me understand how I've hurt you. (laughs) I'm sorry I did that. Or, you know what? It hurt me when you said blank. I love you. Let's work through this. There's... There's a difference in how we talk to each other. Paul says that our words should be appropriate for the occasion. I want you to notice that the end goal of our words should be to give grace, right? Not sorrow, not sadness, and not shame, nothing like that, but grace to the one who hears. We don't just speak to make a point. We don't just speak to conquer or to achieve victory or anything like that. We should always be speaking our words with the other person in mind. The goal should be to build them up. Word choice and the way that we say what it is that we say, it's either going to drive us apart or it's going to bring us together. And then finally... To relate like new and to have anything that resembles a good mess uh, marriage, I'm sorry. We need message. Yeah, we need to forgive. We got to forgive. Husbands, she is going to sin against you. Wives, he is going to sin against you. We will hurt each other. But how we respond when we're sinned against, it's either going to draw us together as married couples or it's going to shove us apart. I want you to think about one of the last spats that you had with your spouse. Maybe it was this morning on the way here. I don't know. Maybe it was out in the parking lot as soon as she got here. I don't know. Now, one of the last ones that uh, I had with Laura... Uh, well, it wasn't one of the last ones, but the one that uh, one of the last ones I had when I actually prepared this message, we'll say that... I was a bit of a jerk uh, a few weeks ago. I don't uh, like it when she tells me how to drive. It actually rubs me all sorts of wrong when she tells me how to drive, and the reason is because of my pride. I openly confess that to you. It's not a good thing, but here is what happened. We were driving around in Louisville, Kentucky, and uh, we were at an off-ramp. And it was an off-ramp that I had taken a bazillion times. I mean, this is where we used to live. We were taking the off-ramp to go to a bookstore where I used to work. I've taken this off-ramp plenty of times, and this off-ramp has a fork in it. And so if you go left, you will go up the street, and if you go right, you will go down the street towards my bookstore. And so we were going to the bookstore. I was in the appropriate lane. I knew that I was in the appropriate lane because I had done this, like I said, so many times before. And as we're exiting, she says, I think you're in the wrong lane. I think you need to be over there. And before I could even catch it, before I could even catch it. I said, I know where I'm going. All sassy-like, you know? I didn't do the triangle snap, but I could have, you know? (laughs) All sassy-like. I mean, my words were just rich, and they were nasty with pride. Who are you to tell me how to drive? I've done this before. I know where I'm going. Who are you to tell me that I might be wrong? By God's grace, I was convicted very, very quickly. I mean, on the spot. There was no reason for me to talk to my wife like that, and so I said, I'm, I'm sorry. And I asked her to forgive me. Now, she had a decision to make. Would she say, I forgive you, or would she respond like I responded to her and remind me of how I'd acted like a big old goober? Well, she did forgive me. And our family had a fantastic day together. We were going to like uh, our zoo up in Louisville does a trick-or-treat type thing where you walk around in candy. So we had a great day together. But if she hadn't forgiven me, if she had held on to bitterness all day long and reminded me of what I had said at the next off-ramp, then it would have been a wedge. (laughs) I mean, it would have been a wedge that would have continued to sink in and just relationally divide us for the rest of the day and it would have been a really unpleasant time hauling the kids around the zoo trick-or-treating for candy. In our marriages, this is a decision that each of us is going to have to make. Hurt is going to happen, all right? Hurt is going to happen, and for conflict to be resolved fully, and for oneness to be maintained, the sinner has to seek forgiveness, and the one who sinned against, they have to forgive. Old us doesn't want to do that, The old us does not want to do that. The old self doesn't want to forgive. The old self wants to get even, right? The old self wants to hurt back. You hurt me. I am going to hurt you. The old us wants to tell other people about it. The old us wants to gossip about it, get folks on our side, form up a Facebook posse. My husband said this to me. Oh, no, he didn't. You know, <laughs> go get yourself a good man, you know. That's what the old us wants to do. And the old us just wants to hold on to anger and keep bringing it up and use it as future ammunition in future arguments. That is what our flesh is begging us to do and stay bitter and mad about it. That's what it wants. But that's not the way of Jesus. Christ told us to pull off the old us. We need to put off an unforgiving heart. Paul says in verse 31, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. All that stuff that we want to do. All that stuff that we naturally want to do that comes so easy to us. Get mad, be mad, stay bad, tell other people about it. But Paul says this is not the way that you learn Christ. This is not the way that you learn Christ. Be done with that. Put away an unforgiving heart. And in its place, put on forgiveness like God's. Instead of all that malice and all that bad stuff, Paul says, be kind. Be kind. Be kind to one another. Tender-hearted, forgiving one another. Which is a whole lot different. Now, we do confess that that is a tall order, don't we? We admit that to respond kindly and to respond, respond tenderheartedly when we are hurt and to actually forgive when we are hurt. Husbands, to forgive when she snaps at you and when she is cold towards you and when she tears you down with her words. Wives, to forgive when you're on his cell phone and maybe you find something on his internet browsing history that you are not too thrilled about. When we are sinned against, what we do is we lovingly make it known to the sinner, just as Jesus tells us to do in Matthew chapter 18. And then the sinner needs to ask for forgiveness. And then the one who is harmed and sinned against needs to forgive. Even if it's hard. And even if it doesn't feel very good to do it. I want you to look at what our model is and who our model is when it comes to forgiveness. Paul says we should be forgiving as God. As God in Christ forgave you. If we have experienced the forgiveness of God for our sins against Him through the sacrifice and agonizing crucifixion of Jesus, then who are we to withhold our forgiveness from anybody? Who are we to withhold our forgiveness from anybody? Forgiveness is not about how we feel. Forgiveness does not have to feel good. Forgiveness is an act of our will. It is us choosing to show kindness and to be tenderhearted and to not hold that offense against another person when they hurt us. And in our marriages, we cannot be one. We absolutely cannot be one unless husband and wife both choose to forgive as they have been greatly forgiven by God himself. So this is how God does it. This is how he transforms us. And as he transforms us, he transforms everything about us, our marriages included. If we're followers of Christ, a good marriage is possible because Jesus has made us new. And like I said this morning, you may not feel so new. You may feel just a little bit wrecked. You may feel like your marriage is a little bit wrecked. You may just feel kind of repaired, like a repair job. But God has made each of us who believe new. But the work is still not done. As he exerts his power in us through the power of his spirit, he is calling us to put on our newness, to daily put on our newness. Remember, I tell folks this a lot. Just because you struggle against sin doesn't mean that you're not new. Part of being new is being able to struggle against it. All right, so be encouraged, husbands and wives, as you struggle against sin because you are brand new. And because you're brand new in Christ, you can relate to each other like new in your marriages. Let's pray. Father God, I want to thank you this morning for the good news of your gospel. I thank you, God, that uh, though we were sinners separated from you by our sin, in your grace and your mercy you sent your innocent son Jesus to die on a cross and be punished in our place. God, you accomplished our forgiveness. You brought us back into relationship with you. And, Lord, that is not the only relationship that you have mended. God, you have made it possible for us to have good relationships with ourselves. God, you've made it possible for husbands and wives to have good relationships with each other. And Father, we praise you for that. I pray, God, that you would impress upon us the need to abandon sin so that we can grow close together. God, you want us to be one. You've called us to be one. You've made marriage for us to be intimate and close and relationally undivided. This is your desire for us. And God, I pray it's the desire of every spouse in this room. But God, please walk with us. Please empower us. Please encourage us as we seek to put off what we were and put on what we are so that we can grow closer together. Thank you again, God, for all this that is made possible through your son, Jesus. We cry out to you in prayer in his name. Amen.